Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Omar Khan, who is a highly experienced finance professional who worked extensively in mergers and acquisitions and transitioned into multifamily investing. So there's a lot we can all learn from him today. Omar, welcome to the show, man. Hey, how's it going? Sorry you can't see me because I am, for the lack of a better word, literally in the closet because I'm trying to hide from my two kids and yeah. do this podcast during coronavirus time. Yeah, it's busy. It's it's weird times. We were having some some interesting chats uh, before I hit record here. Kind of how, you know, it's even tough to get a haircut, and we're just surviving. Well, you got your haircut. Apparently, it's not that tough. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it's. We've got to make adaptations to work from home, and you're in your closet. You had a cool mustache that you're sporting <laughs> right now, yeah. but uh, I don't know if you didn't want to show it on camera because it looks pretty cool to me. Oh, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll search me online and you'll probably see lots of pictures of me with my mustache. Don't worry about that. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So I'm just going to give a little bit of an intro on Omar. So at Boardwalk Wealth, a real estate private equity firm, he's responsible for capital raising, strategic planning, and investor relations. He has over 10 years of global investment experience. He has participated in capital financing and M&A transactions valued at $3.7 billion. He is a CFA charter holder and graduated with honors from the University of Toronto with a Bachelor of uh, Commerce in Finance. Omar moved from Canada and lives in Texas with his wife and kids. And the last thing to note on that, I actually, I, I snagged that bio off of your website on Boardwalk Wealth, but... I had to update it from wife and newborn son to wife and kids sons. because yeah. Yeah, sons because you you just had a newborn son so that's your second I believe right yeah yeah that's my second we're blessed to have a second healthy baby <laughs> awesome yeah I know and and uh, we actually had to uh, postpone this podcast recording a little bit because found out that Omar was having a son and I had my son's due <laughs> date the week or two following Omar. So we're both kind of in the same boat, uh, stressed and, and sleepless right now. <laughs> but no, that's awesome. Congrats to you, Omar. Thank you. <laughs> Before we get into the interview too much, could you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and your current focus? Yeah, look, I moved, as you mentioned, I moved from Canada a few years ago and uh, we're basically buying in Texas, Florida, and Georgia commercial properties with a focus on larger multifamily, you know, 150 to about three, 350 units, give or take. Our focus is basically the value add, but in the B and A space. I'm not really in the C space, uh, but that's just for personal reasons. Yeah, and that's that. I'm happy to get into as many details as you like and go from there. Awesome. So, I mean, your background, you... You worked in mergers and acquisitions. You you hear that in the finance world, and it's kind of a, a sexy term, you know, mergers and acquisitions. It's just the the high flying finance, and you hear about these guys <laughs> whether they be in investment banking, and you're like, oh, they've made it. They've 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 done so well. They must be rolling in the cash and, and doing living this lifestyle. So, talk well, they about- are living a pretty good lifestyle. Don't 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 feel sorry for rich investment bankers. <laughs> so talk yeah, talk, to, yeah. talk to us about that a little bit. Uh, you you came from mergers and acquisitions. How did you make that transition and why did you you make the transition into multifamily? Well, look, my the reason why I made it is because I moved to the U.S., so I had to do something now. 
that was because uh, my wife is a physician. So, you know, when we were engaged, we were deciding, look, and she was, by the way, in the U.S., so she was right about done with her residency, and she was obviously done with her medical school. And about that time, we were deciding, look, look whether when we get married, does she come to Canada, or do I basically go to the U.S.? Because it had to be one or the other. Uh, and basically for her to come up to Canada, long story short, I mean, it was just going to be a lot. She pretty much had to do everything from scratch. And I wasn't going to subject her to that kind of torture because she'd have to do everything from scratch. And so that obviously was off the table. And we were like, okay, you know, so if I move into the U.S., then I really didn't want to move anywhere cold. I wanted to move somewhere really warm and business friendly. So Texas, it was a between Texas or Florida. And, you know, I like Texas. I like Florida, too. We just decided on Texas. We moved down here and my family owns a lot of commercial real estate and has for the past three generations. So I kind of had an idea about that business anyways. And when I moved down, a buddy of mine from Toronto, their family owned a big office portfolio in Houston. He'd called me around the same time. They wanted to reorganize some for estate planning purposes. So I just swung down to Houston from Dallas and started talking, started meeting people, reorganized their portfolio for them. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And here I am. I mean, there was no grand design. I mean, I wasn't one of those guys who always wanted to be in real estate, right? It was just, you know, opportunities showed up. When opportunities showed up, we I went for it. And I've met so many nice people who've opened so many doors that, you know, I'm now in a place where I'm doing this thing. Right, right. And uh, no, that's that's pretty cool coming from Canada. Yeah, there wasn't some grand plan. There wasn't some grand master plan that I followed. Sorry. Well, there, there you go. I mean, it's... Yeah. Uh, and that's where you 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 kind of hear. I mean, real estate. Everyone's kind of got a story, and that's why I wanted you to share yours and and get most of my guests mm-hmm. to share at the beginning how they they got into real estate, how they got into multifamily, because uh, it's really a diverse background. And yeah, the reason for multifamily, by the way, straight up, was just uh, the tax benefits. It's what happened is I, I realized when I moved down here, uh, in between my wife and I was thirty one at the time, or rather, we were thirty one at the time. And I realized, look, I'm not getting any of the services that at least, look, we get highly taxed in Canada, but I know we all love to hate on taxes, but at least we get some level of services, right? Healthcare, all of that. There's a big social safety net. Uh, and obviously, America has a different philosophy on this thing. So that thing in that uh, particular way is not in America. But sure as hell, I was paying a lot of taxes. So I thought, well, this is kind of BS. I don't get the social safety net. I don't get all of that other stuff. but I'm paying a lot of money in taxes. I was com- we were comfortably paying in the six figures in taxes. And while it's a good problem to have, yeah. it, it, this was only going to get worse. So tax benefits were another big, big, big reason for me wanting to move to commercial real estate. Right? right. If you can just reduce our tax bill, which we pretty much have down to pretty much zero now. Uh, yeah, that's a big one, right? And, yeah. you know, the income and appreciation, that doesn't hurt also. There you go. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a cool transition, you know, making that kind of career change in a sense. I mean, you're still in finance, but um, even jumping the border from Canada into the States as close as we are and, and similar as we are in, in, in how we are as countries. Oh, the environment is very different though. It's night and day. It's just a different culture. Yeah. yeah. And even just the setup of making that transition and getting all your paperwork to, to go live in the States, I would imagine had some challenges. Like a little bit of a side note, like, in this time of the, the coronavirus, my sister-in-law, she's actually engaged to an American. So okay. I live right on the border of Washington State in British uh-huh. Columbia. So there's actually a fair handful of people that 
get uh, in relationships that are right across the border because it can literally be five, 10 minutes across the border. And, oh yeah. I mean, it's the same as Buffalo and uh, what is it? Niagara on the Toronto side. Yeah. So now they're, they're engaged. They were supposed to have their wedding probably, I think this Friday, but the borders are closed. So now they are going on dates. He's on one side, she's on the other side and they're having dates across a ditch and talking to each other that way. And they actually, it's interesting. They actually got picked up on, all these, uh, their their story went viral on. <laughs> That's kind of nice. I mean, it's it sucks that they didn't get married. I mean, I'm sure they'll do it pretty soon, but. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, so they got interviewed just last week on, or I think this week on CBC. For the Americans, probably we don't know what that is, but uh, it's a big broadcast company in Canada. So they got interviewed their story, kind of sharing about what they're going, what they're going through, and how this virus has caused all types of weird things in people's relationships. But uh, that's a little side note. But no, that's a tough one, man. I mean, you know, when you're planning on getting married and you've done all the work, and then. I mean, you can't plan for something like this, right? Totally. So you made the jump, went down to the States, went down to Texas, found some warm weather. Were you nervous or kind of upset about having to leave your corporate finance job in mergers and acquisitions? Was was it? Not really, man. I was done. (laughs) Look, I was done. I shouldn't say that. Uh, It was very nice. But the last job that I had, it was with uh, Bulge Bracket Bank. There's only five of them. So you can look it up on my profile. And it was getting to the point where Look, it, it's a very nice industry. Learn a lot of things. I, I had transitioned from M&A to equity research, uh, which is still within the investment banking perimeters. Uh, but the margin in that industry, like a lot of other industries, margins are compressing. The go-go days are gone, right? I mean, yeah, you get paid a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But it's not like the same level of money that you used to get paid. And plus, the other deal is, I think, for a lifestyle option, it wasn't good enough for me because... I always, we always wanted kids, like my wife and I, we both wanted kids. And we kind of realized, look, if we have kids and with her uh, work, at least in the first five, seven, eight, ten years, right, as a physician. And if I was, you know, working 80, 100 hours a week, then even if we had kids, we'd never be able to spend any time with them. And as a family, we'd never really be able to grow. And the other thing was, and again, this is just my opinion, a lot of the guys I used to see who were say my managing directors all of them not all but a lot of them a lot of them happen to be divorced i mean because look if you're working 80 100 hours a week since you're 22 and you're 45 now and yeah you make a lot of money but you're like second you've got two divorces you've got a mild to a full-blown alcohol problem because you know you're working too much right that culture is go 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 you're never off it's bam 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 and i'm like i received emails from my bosses saying i need a vacation from my vacation right? Yeah, Yeah, I'm just being honest with you because look, that's the demand, right? Somebody pays you in an inordinate amount of money, they're going to demand their pound of flesh from you, right? Mm -hmm. And that just wasn't a good enough, basically, uh, trade for me because look, you've got to realize it wasn't like I was a hedge fund guy making like $20 million a year. So, you know, I suck it up, I do it for five years and I got a hundred million dollars and then I ride off into the sunset and I don't have to do anything else from like the age of 35, Obviously, that's not the case. Right. So it was one of those things. And the other thing just was a lifestyle issue. I mean, my family's entrepreneurial. I was used to a certain quality of lifestyle and a certain level of things. And I'll be honest with you, man, at a management director's salary, I was not going to be able to have the same quality of life or rather provide for the same quality of life for my children that I was used to, even right. at that salary. So I had to eventually move to a business, right? Yeah, totally. And I know it's not the exact same road as, as you, you know, in corporate finance, but I mean, I started off 
working at a big four accounting firm. I worked at PwC. And yeah. I'm like, oh boy, like going through busy season, tax season. I'm like, okay. Oh yeah, you're basically chained to your desk. You're chained to your desk. And it was, there's just so much work to be done. And, you know, they try to squeeze out as much as work and labor as they can out of the people that they hire. And especially in the, I was looking ahead and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm, it's not like I'm going to get a massive growth in income continuing on this route, especially at, at like yeah. an accounting firm yeah. where, I mean, investment banking and, and mergers and acquisition is a lot more upside, whereas accounting, you can... No, even it. there, you have to understand, people have this myth though. Look, don't get me wrong. Again, like I said, don't feel sorry for all these investment bankers, but you got to realize these guys aren't getting paid like $5 million a year. Right. right. Yeah, they're getting paid a couple of hundred thousand. And yeah, that's a very nice salary. Nobody's going to argue there. But it's not like you can retire on this money in five years. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah. And they're not building generational wealth. Sure, they have the nice income. But like you said, it's it's always they have to earn that. They have to show up to work. Yeah. If you're not working, that income is not going to be there. Every single week just to continue yeah. that cash flow, that yeah. money coming in their pocket, right? So, okay, so you landed on co- commercial real estate. Tell me a little bit about how that M&A background and, and actually your CFA designation, did that help you? Nope. Your- no, not at all. Look, <laughs> no, look, if you want to look, the CFA is great. I, I think the CFA taught me a good work ethic. It taught me how to be more organized. It taught me to shut up and just go to the work and not, and you know, all these things about, you know, when people say, I don't really feel like doing it. It taught me that none of this shit matters in the real world. In the real world, what matters is that you consistently, with a plan, continuously do hard work, and nobody cares about your sob story, because that 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 the the exam result is pass or fail. Like right. let's assume uh, you passed, you got hundred percent on that exam, and some guy got eighty percent on the exam. Well, hell, you know what? Both of you passed. So who gives a shit? Right. Right. It's very binary that outcome. Right. Either you fail or you pass. So that's what the exam taught me. But look, it was very good from a personal development point of view, but it did not help me at all in terms of uh, transition to commercial real estate. But what did help me were my professional experiences, analytical, then also working on the sell side, which is in the banks and buy side, which is on the corporate side. It helps you to speak the language. Right. So when, because look, if you're talking to a bigger broker, like some guy who's doing like five to eight hundred million dollars of deal transactions a year. Right. You have to be quick on your feet. You have to understand how sales works. Big picture wise, you have to understand how debt works. And you don't have to know all these things, but if you know them, it's a very easier transition. Right. Yeah. So that's my professional experiences are really helpful. But after that, it's like any other business, right? You have to get into it. You have to start meeting people. And then you learn as you go along. You'll make, everybody will make mistakes. Totally. Yeah. So I feel like in a sense, you say it didn't really say, hey, transition directly into multifamily. There's a lot of skills that you had to learn and apply. But I mean, having that foundation, you know, the work ethic. The work ethic was more important than actually the technical. Yeah. The technical skills weren't as important. The work ethic was more important, basically. Yeah, that was the most important thing. I mean, I'm sure in mergers and acquisitions, you were working with a high degree of you know complex transactions and financial models and pro formas and all types of detailed Excel spreadsheets that you probably got lost in. Do you feel that that level of, of detail that you went into analyzing companies has really just helped you in your underwriting ability to model nope. out? No, nope. because the average multifamily deal is really the capital structure is so simple. It's a freaking joke. It's either senior debt and equity. 
Now, if you go a little higher, yeah, you can put Nets debt or Pref equity, but your capital structure really isn't that complex, right? right? So from a capital structure and complex modeling point of view, it's not really that, I mean, it doesn't hurt if you have it, right? But it's right. not going to like save you. Right. But the big thing is, I think the bigger idea there would be understanding like if you can just go through your PL quickly, like mm-hmm. what are the drivers in your PL? Or, or if you don't know anything about any business, right? But if I give you the random PL and I tell you, hey, this is a lawnmower business or this is this business, you should be able to go through the PL and kind of have a rough idea what are the drivers of each line item. Right. right. Because if you understand that, then you don't really need to build a model. You can build it out on a piece of paper and you know our results should still be the same. What I think a lot of this MA work forces you to do if you're intelligent is that it allows you to understand how the profit and loss works, how the, and if you understand how the financial statements work, to a good degree you have a leg up over somebody who just understands operations. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of finance guys think that's the only thing you need, and I can safely tell you this is why a lot of private equity guys or a lot of finance guys, when they actually go into firms, they just flame out completely, right? They just don't, a lot of these guys just do not go anywhere because in the real world, you have to hit your numbers, but you also have to understand operations. You also have to understand why things happen, right? Uh, so operations is something that a lot of finance guys don't know, don't have enough appreciation of, and it's kind of looked down upon, but that's eventually at the end of the day, what drives numbers and what drives results. Right. All right. So that's awesome. And when you talk about operations, you're really talking about managing the business, managing the the multifamily portfolio well, learning how to increase your income, decrease your expenses, and just manage. Yeah, and not just that, and not just that from a financial modeling point of view, right? More more from the fact of okay, like for instance, if you have revenue. So I'll give you an example. In the U.S., a lot of folks use uh, pricing engine. I'm sure they use it in Canada as well. Pricing engines offers like Yieldstar or I think RealPage has one, which basically is a pricing algorithm which is supposed to basically uh, provide you the most dynamic pricing, up-to-date pricing. Now, a lot of times companies use big words like algorithm and machine learning and dynamic. And if you don't know what these means, you think they're big words so people start buying the software because they tell you if you don't have it, you'll be behind everybody else. Well, the problem is find on a financial spreadsheet, you can make it look really nice, but operationally, you understand that, look, if I buy this pricing engine, by the way, who's going to be running this pricing engine? They typically hand it off to like the junior most employee. So your junior most employee is the one setting the prices, which the property manager at the ground level is looking at, right? Now, if you don't understand how the piping and how the system works at the back end, you'll start running into a lot of problems because, for instance, during coronavirus, because demand and supply is matching, they're not, there's a lot of technical issues there. The price that is quoted is so out of whack that you will never be able to lease a unit. So if you don't understand why a pricing engine works a certain when this is just an example on the revenue side, how the infrastructure is laid, how do you go from the back end, which is say, whatever your system software is working, to the front end, which is a tenant walks into your clubhouse and the property manager says, great. This one bedroom is for $1,000. How does that process work at the back? And if you don't understand it, no amount of financial modeling is going to save you. Right. So moving, moving on here, let's, yeah. let's talk a little bit about the operations, the asset management. So mm-hmm. this is a topic that not, 
many people go really in depth on or talk too much about. I'm, I think I heard you talk about it on another podcast and you're basically like, oh, it's not the sexy part, but it, it is such a, an important. That, yeah, this is what gets you the money. money. Yeah, basically. totally. So yeah. let's go to its simplest form. What is asset management and what do you need to know about it? It basically means how do you run your operations in the most efficient way possible. Right. Right. You're based, because look, you have to realize you have a property manager. A property manager is doing their job, which is to lease up units. Number one, right? But you also have to realize they're not the one looking at the big picture. The big picture is managing your profit and loss. Now, as an example, if you tell the property manager, hey, I want you to go lease these five units. Let's assume the the rent the property manager should be leasing these units at is $1,000, just for this example, right? Now, she can go lease these units, five units, and might take her a long while, or she can take a really short amount of time, but lease these units out at $700, right? Because, well, hell, you told her to lease the units up. You didn't tell her what price to lease is at, right? So there's lots of small nuances. So because you as an asset manager should be looking at the big picture, not just lease up the units. What price? What's the loss to lease? There's so many factors there, right? That you are, you should be the person at the top who's managing the property manager and other people to basically ensure that you hit the business plan that you said you want for this property. Because everybody's responsible for doing their own role. And you're the person in the middle making sure how everybody goes works goes around to ensure that you hit the target that you have decided for your investors. Right. And it comes down to having the right business plan and implementing it and making sure the property manager implements it and and you know, hits your target. So could you talk about the process of developing the business plan for let's, let's say a value add property, because uh, let's just focus on having a place where we're actually adding value and doing some renovation. So how do we go about developing that business plan? Well, that depends on the submarket. That depends on the type of product you're buying. So as an example, if you're buying the C type property, right? It's more work. I, we don't really do this, but I'm just giving you as an example. This is more working class people, right? Make people make, in the US at least, people breaking that 40, 42 grand a year, right? Now, what you choose to do there, right? As an example, what type of finishes do you put on? What type of rent bumps are you going to expect? That's going to be very different then you know if your tenant base is making $60,000, $70,000, right? Because when somebody's making, say, $60,000, $70,000 a year, it's easier for you and I to go get $200 a month extra in rent, you know, provided we provide the value, than to do the exact same upgrade, exact same finish, but the resident doesn't make enough money, so how are they going to pay you more money? Right. So right. understanding who your resident profile is, what your submarket is like, then, for instance, the things you can do in a new build property, like something that let's assume was built this year. Right. You'll have higher ceilings. You'll have more of an open concept space. So that's a very different design element than, say, some building that was built in the 60s. They'll have lower ceilings. It feels more cropped in. So it's not just a money issue at that time. Right. I mean, it's just a structural issue. Can your building even go do this thing? Because you can have a plan to say, uh, I want to have an open concept, this, this, this. But if your ceiling is only seven feet high, whereas these days ceilings are up to nine, ten feet high. I mean, it's just a structural issue. So your business plan has to be congruent with what type of product or what type of asset you're buying. And what type of finishes you do have to be congruent with what type of residence you have. If your resident can't afford a Ferrari, well, you can buy a Ferrari. Nobody's just going to buy it from you. Nobody's going to pay you that money, right? right? So you have to be very congruent in what market you're playing, what niche you're playing, and why are you doing those things? 
So this is why it's very important to develop an investment criteria. Once you've developed an investment criteria, that forces you to only pick certain markets and you're not scattered everywhere. Right. So at what point should you start developing this business plan? Because I mean, like you mentioned, they're going to vary from market to market. They're going to vary from um, assets. At the start, obviously, man, at the start, before you even look at any assets, before you even try to raise money, you should first decide what do you want to do, right? Because if you want to go left, right? Let's do your destination is if you want to go left, you don't start walking right and start deciding in the meantime what you got to do, right? right? Sometimes it's a lot better to just pay for decide what you want to do, and then go from there. Right. So, I mean, you talked about a lot of different things to look at mm-hmm. when you're deciding your business plan and you're setting your criteria. So, yeah. and there's a lot of data that goes into it and, and market research. So what type of market research and, and where, like, where are you getting that data to actually come up with that, that right, that plan to know, oh, this is the tenant profile. This is the income. This is you know, the average income of the tenant and um, getting to know all that information. So how are you gathering all of that? Look, you can subscribe to a lot of industry feeds in the U.S. at least. In Canada, I'm not as familiar because I didn't do this in Canada. But in the U.S., there's lots of information sources. City data is a free source. There's lots of paid sources as well. Uh, but you can get a lot of this information from the U.S. census. It's free. I mean, you don't have to pay for it. A lot of the stuff, which is more paid, allows you to be more visual and all of that sort of stuff. But if you had to pick one stat, again, I sh- I'm not saying you should, but if you just had to pick one stat, I've realized median income tells you a lot of things right. because it captures a lot of things, right? It captures, and because at the end of the day, number one, it captures a lot of things, but what you're really trying to understand is how much money does the average resident have? doesn't matter where they're from. doesn't matter what they like. doesn't matter what they prefer. If you don't have the money, you are not going to be able to do certain things, right? And if you have right. more money, you're able to do more things. So the median income captures a lot of things. But of course, more than that, you have to drill down. Because at least in the U.S., I'm talking from the U.S. context, Hispanic communities are very different than Black communities. Black communities are very different than white communities. Diverse communities are very different than just a white community, right? So there's many variables at play there. Yeah. So going through the process of creating a business plan, mm-hmm. like what is the end result? Like what is your, let's call them the, your deliverables. If you're saying, hey, this is my business plan, this is my criteria, what documents and resources should be created to make sure that you feel comfortable, that you know that you have a detailed plan in place? Well, you need to know how, what's, first of all, what's the size of the property you want to target? Where do you want to target that property? Okay, what type of profile will that property be? As an example, is it value-add, stabilized, whatever it is? Then basically, what vintage would it be? Because look, you can have the same size property with the same type of, say, value-add or stabilized, but if one property was made in the 60s and one property is made in the 90s, the pricing will be very different, right? Right. And all of this boils down to the fact that, well, how much money do you got to spend? Right? A guy who goes to buy a Bentley uh, doesn't go to the Suzuki showroom. Right? right? And a guy who's just going to buy a Toyota Corolla, I mean, is, what is he going to do going to a Ferrari showroom? Probably not. Right? I mean, there's no use. You can go there, but you just can't do anything. Right? So you got to decide how much money do you have? How much money do you want to spend? Okay. Right. That determines what type of asset can you buy. Within that asset, where do you want to go buy it? Because now you're in British Columbia. I'm just making this up. Maybe you don't want to go all the way to Ontario. So maybe there is a great property in Ontario, but if you're not willing to go there, that property might as well not exist for you at least, right? Right. Yeah, no, and, and, that, and that's exactly it. I mean, 
our fund has set its criteria to focus on Western Canada. And that's just due to proximity, due to yeah. relationships, due to if we're going to go fly and see the asset, if we're going to deal with our trades or we're going to have property management. Like we yeah. have a reputation and, and have relationships across Western Canada. And not to say that we're, we're not going to shun it completely, uh, Eastern Canada, but... It's just harder, right? I mean, yeah. why do you want to make it harder for yourself for no reason? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we might expand our geographic uh, footprint and, and look for expanding that down the road. Um, and, and I think that's coming sooner than later and even, you know, potentially look down in the States. But like you said, it's having your criteria on. Yeah. But even in the States, right. Yeah. Even in the States, where would you look? You got to decide because the exactly. States is a pretty big place. Exactly. Totally. So say you got your business plan, you know exactly what you're you're looking for, you, you get your deal under contract, you close on it. So what are the next steps? Like from an asset management perspective, what are you looking to do right after you close on an acquisition to make sure? Well, for, for our types of acquisitions, which are mostly value add, once we close, then it's just all hands on deck with basically in the first year, year and a half on the CapEx process. So the exteriors get done first, interiors you know, keep going on. And the whole idea is we've already developed a scope of work for our CapEx project for both interiors and exteriors, like I mentioned. And then it's just hitting them, you know, go, 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 go. You can't relax. So it's every day, every week, every month. It's just go, go, go. That's it. It's the first year and a half. It's all focused on CapEx and cycling in, say, higher, higher income, higher quality tenants in who will pay you for the upgrades you are doing. Right. So what are the main things? Right, that, because the whole point is you can do anything you like, but if people don't pay you money, well, what's the point? Right. What are the main things from a CapEx perspective? Right, so it all boils down to, again, that resident profile, right? That resident profile can afford what you're doing. That's great. Totally. So like, what are the main things from a CapEx perspective that you're looking to upgrade? And you talked about interiors and exteriors. I mean, obviously you could be doing the roof, the siding, like what are those main things that are like, hey, these are these are the items that we need to improve. Because some, pe- some people can go as light and just uh, say, hey, we're just going to put lipstick on a pig and, and kind of just slap some new paint on, you know, put on new countertops and make it look fresh. And like, what are the, um, when you talk about CapEx, like where are you looking to add your value? Well, again, that depends what type of property I'm buying, right? If I'm buying a property that's completely bombed out at the at exterior-wise, all my money is going into exteriors. Because if you drive up and the place looks like somebody got murdered, right, you're not going to be there forever, right? So initially, I have to go to the exteriors, do landscaping, basically clean up the pool area, do exteriors, siding repairs, wood repairs, all that sort of stuff. Now, if I'm, when I'm focusing on the interiors, you've got it depends what type of profile my residents have. Now, my residents are typically upper middle class people. They're looking at countertops, lights, paints, cabinets, and a nice vanity. So, but if somebody has right. less money, I mean, you you might put a Formica countertop and not a quasi, what, what, what do they call it, a faux granite countertop, right? So, every resident profile right. is different. To say you're just going to do one thing, you can do it, but that's asking for trouble. So, it comes down to, I mean, real estate really is a team yeah. sport. And especially in the asset management side of things, when you're working with third-party property managers and other trades and, and contractors. So how do you, and this is going to be unique to you, specifically coming from Canada, even and in, in going out into Texas and starting from scratch there. And you're like, okay, I had no relationships um, in this area. You, know, you probably did have some already, but. I didn't have any relationships. Well, I just had to go out physically, meet one person at a time, develop the relationships. 
use the relationships that I did develop, rely on them to show, tell me about more people and just go from there. I mean, honestly, my experience mm-hmm. is no different than if you were an American and say you'd move from, say, New York, uh, where, say, let's say your entire family is, to Texas. And you don't know anybody there, right? You do right. the exact same thing. You have to go out. You have to put yourself out there. You have to go meet people. And trust me, if you're a professional, you're not a time waster, you're not a tire kicker, and you say what you're going to do and do what you're going to say, right? So you're just not like, hey, I just want to talk to you, right? Nobody has time for that BS, right? But if you're actually a professional, people want to help you, man. I'm I'm a living proof of that. I moved from Canada to the US and so many people have been generous with their time, with their contacts, and they've introduced me to other people. And again, you keep improving on this thing, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's always a work in progress, but everybody right. starts this way, right? You just have to put yourself out there. Yeah. So, I mean, the the property manager being so key, so you really leveraged relationships and was it through introductions or how did you go and vet your property manager to go manage these 150 plus unit properties? Dude, Google, man. Have you heard Google? Like you you look up who's managing, who's the property manager, then you look up what basically properties they manage and say your submarket. That'll give you an idea of three or five property managers, right? So somebody is managing, say, 10 properties Mm -hmm. and where you want to be. That's a pretty good indicator that at least they've got the now they I'm not saying it's good, but it means that they've got a way better idea of that mm-hmm. market than you and I would, right? So you start talking to three or five of these people, right? And a lot of times you talk to brokers, you'd be like, who are the good property managers in this area? They'll tell you. You talk to property managers, who are other property managers in the area? They'll tell you. Now you go interview three or five of these, and then you basically ask them questions about, hey, how are your systems? How are your people? How do you manage the properties? What do you do? Uh, I mean, it's not a one conversation thing, right? It's not like you have one conversation today and tomorrow you've got your answers, right? You have to have multiple conversations, financial, operational, human resources related questions. You talk to them and you see how the responses are. You see how they follow up with you and all of that stuff. And the way you're judging them, they're judging you whether you're a good enough client for them to take on, at least the quality mm-hmm. ones are doing that. And from there on end, you just go. But even then, if you've hired a property manager, it's not like your job finishes. You still got to manage the property manager because it's not the property manager's money. It's your money that's on the line. It's your yeah. reputation that's on the line. So the property manager can come tell you whatever they want to tell you. But if it doesn't make sense, or if this means that they spent a lot more money, you just have to push back and be like, look, that's great. But when you're the one who's spending the money, how about you do things your way? When I'm the one who's spending the money, I'll do things my way. So how frequently are you having those conversations with your property manager when... Every day, my oh, yeah? friend. You think, yeah, yeah. This is a con- this is ongoing stuff, man. Every day, if, if, if I'm not having it, one of my employees is having it. Mm-hmm. It's an everyday thing. You can't just let... Yeah, the day you slack off for a day, you, you slack off for six hours... And people are just going to relax, stop working, and your project is going to go behind schedule. This has to be relentless, man. This cannot be, yeah, you tell them and then you buzz off for like on your vacation for like three months and then you come back and then you talk to them. No, no, no. Things don't really work like that. You have It's continuously you have to be in touch with people. Over-communication is always better than under-communication. Anytime somebody sends you a response, which is not black or white, Literally, I mean, I type this. Okay, so to clarify, you are saying if we do X, it leads to Y. Please confirm, right? Mm -hmm. If there's any doubt, don't assume the other person is doing something. It's better that you ask them up front 
as opposed to assuming something is happening. And then at the back end, you know, they're like, well, I told you this was going to happen. You're like, well, I didn't know you meant that. Yeah. Right. So this is an ongoing thing. Yeah. 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 So would it be typically say in your circumstance, one person overseeing the asset or doing the asset management, overseeing that property manager, or is it kind of a team? Like who's on those calls? Is it just one person or kind of a team to, to oversee that? No, I have two or three employees, right? So various people are managing various things, mm-hmm. but I'm managing those people. They have re- deliverables and reports. D- people have give them deliverables and reports and they give me deliverables and reports. Some deliverables are every day. It's an automatically generated report will go out to you. Some deliverables are every week, right? Uh, we have a big meeting where everybody talks with each other once a week. But if you think, you know, it's you can't just, all I'm trying to say is that if it's your money on the line or if it's your investor's money on the line, this is like any other business in the world. The day you take your eyes off the ball, it's not going to work. This isn't like, you know, all this stuff you hear about passive investment and passive this and passive that. Let me tell you this. That's all BS. Okay. That's good if you're an investor. Okay. That's why you're paying me money to do this thing. But me, on a day-to-day basis, I'm not a passive investor. And by the way, I'm not the only one. This Everybody, everybody who is a professional is doing this on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So the passive part is only if you're on a limited partner. As a general partner, there is no passive. Right. We are active. In fact, my name is on the loan. So if things screw up, I have more than... I have a lot of liability on my shoulder. So because I have a liability on my shoulder, I have to go work every day. I can't just relax. And by the way, again, like I'm trying to say, I'm not the only one. I know many other people in the industry there. They all do the same thing. Right. So, I mean, you talked about deliverables and overseeing them, running it like a business. Yeah, it's not like a business. Trust me, it is a business. It is a business. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I I 100% agree. It is a business. Some people... Think yeah, you hear that the word passive income and oh yeah, you just buy it, let it sit, and and you make your money. And from the yes, from the LP side of things, limited partners, but general partners, that's why they're making some fees on it by actually managing it because it does take active management, right? So what are some of the KPIs you're looking at to to manage the the asset effectively? Like, am I hitting my numbers to budget or not? For instance, what's my lost please? What's my vacancy, occupancy, economic vacancy, economic occupancy? How is my foot traffic looking like? Where is my CapEx schedule? Am I on track? Am I not on track? Mm-hmm. If I'm on track, what is the, are the mix of my units like? What is the renovation mix do I have? If, if this mix is changing over time, why is it changing over time? Do I have data to back it up? If I don't, then why am I spending more money? Spend less money the damn person in the damn apartment, charge them the same rent, and now I don't have to spend so much money. So what I'm trying to say is everybody has a different way of doing this, right? So if you think there is one metric, this key metric that covers everything, that doesn't exist because each of your assets are going to be very different. Mm-hmm. If you have a class B asset or say a class A asset that's recently built, you don't have to go ape shit on your CapEx, mm-hmm. right? Because I mean, there's nothing there. What are you going to do? Right. So you can maybe not be as uh, intense on your CapEx process. Right. But let's assume you've got a class C asset that hasn't been touched in 10 years. Well, that's way heavy lift. Right. So there you have to be a lot more intense on your operations, on your financials, all that sort of stuff. So what I'm trying to say is it's very it's all of these answers are highly dependent on what do you have? What are you buying when you're buying it? 
well, how much work are you willing to do on this damn thing, right? Because if you're not willing to do a lot of things, but you do want to buy yourself, then do yourself a favor and buy something turnkey or new. But if you're willing to roll up your sleeves and you also have the operational expertise to do it, then you might be able to look at, say, a more uh, heavy lift type of project, right? Because assuming you get the heavy lift project at some sort of a discount, because it's no use getting a heavy lift project uh, when you don't get a discount, because then you'll do all the work but not get rewarded for it. Totally. Yeah. So you you added a, a ton of insight into the asset management perspective and, and just addressing yeah. the importance of, yes, this is a business. It needs to be run like a business. And and for those of you know people out there looking at it as like, oh, I can just hop in and dip my toes in and, and it'll be no problem and it'll just be passive income. It is it is challenging. And that's why these experienced operators and general partners are out there working their butts off to make those limited partners money. So if you do want to be that, you know, sit on the beach, let let the passive income come into you, that's where you should be looking at it from a limited partner perspective. So you, you really hit that home, drove that point home, uh, which is awesome and, and had some really valuable insight into asset management. So before we wrap up this conversation, I want to take it to our final four questions where you give short to the point answers. Sure. So what is your favorite real estate or business book? Oh, I don't know if I have a real estate book because I don't read a lot of real estate books. This uh, book, I guess... Uh, I don't know, it's Black Swan, a business book, that book by Nicholas Nassim Talib. I guess it's kind of like a business book because it talks about risk management. Okay. But yeah, I like that book. I think it's a very nice book. And that whole series is very nice. So I would encourage people to read it. Okay, I haven't heard of that one. I'll have to check it out. So what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? Oh, uh, I should have moved to the US like 10 years before I moved to the US. Ha, it's a way it's a way more dynamic market than our market. It's a way bigger market. There's a lot more tax write up. I mean, it's a way better market. There you go. What's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? I I right now, man, with two kids, I don't have a daily habit because my habits are basically run by the whims of my kids right now. So I guess being organized is one habit, but that's not a daily habit. That's like this is me. Yeah, no, totally. I've, I've found that. But I think I'll be able to better answer this question when my kids become a little older and I have some breathing room to think about things. Yeah, I found that same thing. I'm, you know, my son is now only 10 days old or something uh, close close to that. And it's like, oh man, it's even trying to send out a simple text or, or do something. It's like, okay, you've always got to be thinking of him. Where is he? Is he crying? What does he need? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would like, I would love to have habits. Yeah, I would love to have habits, but... Yeah, there's nothing daily <laughs> happening. Everything is determined by my kids right now. Okay, when you're not working and uh, putting together yeah. deals, what do you do for fun? Oh, I hang out with my wife. I love reading books, so nothing exciting. Terribly exciting now. I think a lot of my friends would laugh at the type of person I've become now. <laughs> I used to be out every single day socializing. I don't do any of that stuff anymore, man. It's I just can't because I can either do that or go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> and I prefer yeah. to go to sleep now. <laughs> yeah. You're a family man now. So last thing here is how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, you can go to our website, Board Walk Wealth, at B-O-A-R-D Walk Wealth. And you can just sign up, add your name. Hopefully you know that, your email. It's right on our front page. And just click the button and you'll be added to our mailing list. You can also email me at omar at boardwalkwealth.com. Awesome. So Omar, it was great having you on the show. Really appreciate you, oh, thank you. you, you coming on here even with your newborn and I know you're, you're busy and 
cramping yourself in your closet to, to get on this. So <laughs> that was awesome. I really appreciate you coming well, on today. The pleasure was all mine. I'm greatly appreciative of you extending the invitation. No problem at all. So thanks again and talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.